Hello, folks. Before we begin, think to yourself. Have you listened to something new lately? Because on the Simply Scary Podcast Network, there is always something new to try. Don't miss the latest episode of Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSorley, airing on Wednesdays. And, of course, don't forget Drew Blood's Dark Tales, Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, and, of course, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You can find them all here at simplyscarypodcast.com on YouTube or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the chillingtalesfordarknights.com website, become a patron, and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Join us for a while, won't you? <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 24, the final episode of this season. It's been quite the journey, but it has all just been a warm-up for Season 13. Lucky number 13, folks. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you courtesy of author Shadow Swimmer 77. Tonight we'll hear stories of monsters and misanthropes, vicious villains, creepy camping. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, simply visit simplyscurrypodcast.com and click patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. There are those who are groomed for the family business. And there are those who see that grooming and decide they'd rather be elsewhere. Take this journal, recently discovered, of a fellow who seems to be more concerned with the strange mysteries of the world than his family's holdings and the people who take care of them. Fortunately for him, he's about to come head-to-head with something that might just appear more human than he does, but only just. Without further ado, I present to you, Tunda. The Journal of Thomas Wicker, November 3, 1910. There are a thousand ways to die in the Colombian rainforest. I first gained this appreciation as a boy when, in a questionable bit of parental inspiration... The father allowed me to accompany him to inspect our family's South American holdings, in particular, a coffee plantation located on the eastern slopes of the Andes. The expedition was considered almost routine, the chosen path well known to our guards and guides. Yet even so, we encountered no small number of difficulties in our travels. In one case, the hardship was self-imposed, The famous spendthrift, father only secured enough Peruvian bark for the white members of our party. Plagued the entire way by incessant swarms of disease-bearing mosquitoes, several of the native porters fell ill with the sweats, too fatally. In another instance, we stopped along our route in a small village to rest for a day or two. One of father's men, a Mr. Casper by name, went into the jungle with a local girl, his intentions only too clear. Our party received a shock when the girl returned a short time later, naked and covered in blood, babbling incessantly in her native tongue. One of our guides, who spoke the language, eventually got the tale from her. It seems that in the throes of their passion, 
Mr. Casper failed to notice the stealthy approach of one Panthera Anka, that most deadly of Amazonian cats. The feline made short work of the man, powerful jaws latching mercilessly onto the back of his exposed neck, while the girl, pinned beneath the victim, could only watch helplessly. We found him the next day, hanging from the high branches of a tree, bloodless and stored like so much meat in an icebox for later consumption. Father, proclaiming Mr. Casper's demise as the ripened fruit of the man's own stupidity, would not deign to give him a burial. Rather, we continued on our way to the plantation. The body left to the beast who claimed it through these ancient rites of the hunt. All said, the trip was extremely educational, if in an utterly unconventional sort of way. Returning home to America after several long months of travel, my young mind was open to the disparity that existed in the world, never more aware of the benefits offered me by the accrued wealth of my family. I'm unsure the precise effect father had hoped my accompanying him on the journey would induce, but I do know that he must have viewed the reality as a most spectacular failure. I had tasted the life of the explorer, the excitement and the danger, and found it wanting. What was adventure to the modern comforts of a privileged life? I swore an oath to myself that never again would I be deprived of modern convenience, that the most daring I would undertake would be through new culinary experience or perhaps seducing the exotic princess of a foreign land. I threw myself into this newly chosen lifestyle with gusto, and can accordingly mark with some significant accuracy when father's eventual hatred of me took seed in our relationship. It is thus, with some surprise, that I find myself now returning to that same plantation I visited in my youth. Since father's death, almost a decade ago, I generally allowed proxies to take care of the day-to-day -day responsibilities of managing the family holdings. Father ensured he employed only the most educated lawyers, selected the hardest-willed and most obedient men as his overseers and foremen, and so the Wicker Estate has continued to run itself as some kind of great machine whose engineer has long since abandoned the controls. This is fortunate. I have no particular interest in business myself. A fact that no doubt served as another blight on my character in father's eyes. But current circumstances demand my attention. I shall refrain from again recounting in these pages the strange events surrounding father's murder. Just so, I've utterly failed to convince any others of the verity of such tales and have subsequently ceased to make the attempt, lest I am thought more cracked than father in his final days. No matter. They were not there. They did not see what my eyes beheld, then or since. Indeed, much as my expedition with father first opened my mind to the nature of a privileged life, so too did his death widen my perspective to those ungodly hidden things which men share in this world. 
like a jaguar silently stalking the Amazonian canopy. It's due to this enlightened viewpoint, one that allows the existence of the fantastic and occult alongside the otherwise commonplace and mundane, that I'm responding, personally, to the devilry currently afflicting the operation of my Columbian plantation. I received a letter just over a month ago from Mr. Giles, longtime overseer of the facility. Life near the Andes jungle is tenuous at best, with death always a hair-breadth away, as illustrated by my own youthful journey. Yet Mr. Giles reported recent events were perpetuated by something far more than any such commonly suffered maladies. It was just this past June that the first of the disappearances had occurred. Initially, just small things, a native man or two failing to show up for his picking shift. Such absences were easily attributed to a too-hard night of drinking or a simple decision to move on from the plantation. Work was hard and unforgiving, and turnover was regularly high among the laborers. But after a week of disappearances, and with none of a dozen or so men managing to return from their absences, it became clear that something more sinister was afoot. Mr. Giles ordered the foreman to interview the laborers forcefully enough to determine they were being truthful in their ignorance as to the nature of the disappearances. Indeed, all that was ascertained by the inquiry was that the victims had, to this point, all been young men between the age of sixteen and thirty, and all had vanished sometime during the hours past sundown. Confirming a further lack of knowledge among the general population, Mr. Giles proceeded along a logical line of reasoning. It was not unheard of for a local predator to gain a taste of man-flesh, much as in the case of Mr. Casper's undignified demise. The foreman, organizing a rotating series of hunting parties to conduct forays into the jungle, searching for some sign of the murderous beast or its victims to no avail. Since an active confrontation with the culprit had proven unsatisfactory, a number of clever devices were rigged near the perimeter of the plantation as well as outside the small adjoining village in which the majority of the workers lived. Mr. Giles' overseers were a hard-experienced lot and comprised a broad collective knowledge of fieldcraft and ingenuity, reflected in the nature of their improvised booby traps. Tiger pits from Burma, man-catchers from Malaysia, Punji stakes, deadfalls, and a dozen other deadly workings were employed, the construction taking on a competitive air as each man sought to outdo his compatriots. But despite these Herculean efforts, the disappearances continued unabated until almost a tenth of Mr. Giles' force had gone missing. Men began abandoning the plantation in droves, unwilling to wager their lives even in defense of their livelihood, with ultimately only one in four men choosing to stay on. The November harvest, ripe and unpicked, the beans in danger of rotting, it was with the deepest regret Mr. Charles was at last forced to report the inevitability that the plantation's production would fail to meet quota. To be honest, news of the potential loss of revenue did not overly concern 
My family's holdings were extravagantly vast and varied, possessing shares in everything from oil fields in Turkey to fisheries off the shores of Nova Scotia. The downturn of a single plantation would scarcely be a noticeable absence amidst the wicker's estate annual profits, never mind that the accrued wealth held in banks and markets across the world was already significant enough to persist for at least several lifetimes. And, as I have previously stated, thus, I'm hardly a business wonderkind, possessing the acumen that would allow the plantation to turn calamity into glorious success. On the contrary, I'm sure that the crop will fail. Indeed, since receiving Mr. Giles' letter, I've resolved to close the facility, as even the thought of the effort necessary to recover the plantation once the crisis has reached its resolution bores me to tears. I don't need the money, God knows. Better to simply close the damn thing and be done with it. But not yet. No, not yet. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You see, though I care little for coffee or the beans for um, whence it comes, since father's death, I've developed an obsession with the inexplicable. I've learned far more than I once could have ever imagined. For eight years scouring the world to find my more natural inclinations to merely abide in an existence of simple luxury. I've seen things, many wonderful and strange. I have gradually begun to ever so gently peel back the thin veneer that separates our waking world from how the things truly are. God's, it is exciting. And terrifying. It is in this pursuit that I find myself returning to Colombia. For in his reports, Mr. Charles admitted that while he didn't know wherein the rumor began that the plantation was being haunted shortly after the disappearances began, a word was on the breath of every man, white and brown, still remaining at the facility. Tunda. The name, previously completely unknown, Pointed research into the matter offered but little illumination. Described as a changeling who often takes the form of a loved one or a beautiful woman to lure victims into its grasp, reports vary across the region with little support, ranging from one account to the next. Indeed, my study could not even reach a consensus regarding the fate of the thing's victims, whether their blood is drunk like fine wine or their devoured whole. Most odd is that the preacher's shape-shifting ability is often reported as imperfect. 
some aspect of the being's true form remaining visible, while the rest is disguised. Oftentimes, a deformed leg. I do not believe this last. In my experience with the fantastic, such as a chink in the predator's armor, some telltale sign enabling the unwary prey to spot his otherwise indistinguishable hunter is more like to be wishful thinking than actual reality, an illusion of hope. Though I'd never heard of the tundra, prior to Mr. Giles' skeptical report, I have known its like. I do not anticipate its identification will be so conveniently forthcoming. Now, having departed from New York to the port of Cartagena, nothing to do but wait until I make my landing. I rode ahead to Mr. Giles, requesting he provide an escort to meet my ship and guide me to the plantation. With luck, I shall avoid the pitfalls of my previous excursion and ought to arrive at the property within a month. November 20th, 1910. The situation at the plantation has degraded far worse than reported in Mr. Giles' letter. Since I last wrote, good weather favored my ship's passage, and I was pleasantly surprised to be met upon debarkation by Mr. Lyle McCready within Mr. Giles' employ. A veteran of the Indian Wars, Mr. McCready is a strong, capable sort, if in possession of something of a dour disposition. Still, his demeanor improved markedly when I revealed the case of good Kentucky bourbon stowed within my luggage. Soon, he and the two boarders he had secured had me well on my way to the facility. With two mounts per man, we made good time, far better than on my previous expedition, and within ten days had traveled the almost three hundred miles to the plantation near the Venezuelan border of Cucara. The mood of our little party took a discernible downturn this morning as we neared our destination and soon all traces of goodwill had retreated from Mr. McCready's stony countenance. His eyes shifted continuously from one side of the trail to his other. His hand never strayed far from the large revolver, already loosened in the holster worn upon his hip. All the while, the looming trees seemed to close in around our little band. We were perhaps three miles from the plantation when the smell ambushed us customary bitterness of the coffee beans, mixed with a sick sweetness as they turned sour. There was something unsettling about that final leg of the journey that took me several uncomfortable minutes to identify. The sounds of the jungle, or rather their absence, other than the gentle hoofbeats of our mules along the worn dirt track. Foul air was silent empty of bird call and insect alike. The land was already dead, the presence of the plantation merely artificially extending the semblance of life. Passing between the fields of rotted plants, we, at last, reached the facility proper. It appeared, much as I remembered from my youth, a high wire fence surrounding the large drying shacks, shucking annex, and mills adjoining a modest administrative building which served as both office and living area for Mr. Giles and the overseers. A bit farther down the road, I could just spy the small outcrop of buildings comprising the workers' village. I recalled from my last trip an omnipresent haze of smoke hanging over the huts from cooking fires and stoves. 
a constant state of bustling motion, as the pickers came and went from their barracks, choking and laughing in their shared camaraderie. But now the air was clear, the lack of movement as haunting as the silent jungle. We were greeted at the gate at the compound by Mr. Giles himself. Always a bear of a man, he seemed much unchanged from when I first met him, but for a great deal more gray in his beard. He ushered us to the relative safety of the wire fence, where we were offloaded from the mules and sent the porters on their way before proceeding to the office. Mr. Giles hobbled ahead on a makeshift crutch. While reiterating the profuse apologies of his original correspondence, he explained that since his letter, the Tunda had become emboldened as the population of the camp dwindled. At night, its chilling cries, a strange amalgam of animal howl and maniacal cackle, could be heard echoing throughout the surrounding jungle. Mr. Giles had temporarily reintegrated armed patrols in the daily routine, hoping to catch the creature unaware, but the diminished manpower forced him to participate in the hunt himself. On one such excursion, about a week passed, he witnessed the man on his flank get jerked violently into the brush. Mr. Giles charged after the victim, his yell startling the rest of the stalking party. In the ensuing conflagration, one of the workers discharged his rifle into the jungle where Mr. Giles had disappeared, inadvertently striking him through the thigh. The wound, while painful, had fortunately avoided major blood vessels and was not life-threatening. In the days since, Mr. Giles has suspended the patrols, deciding that the likelihood of success did not outweigh the associated hazards. More so, his injury served as a catalyst to drive out those workers, heretofore still remaining at the camp, effectively making such regular hunts impossible. The only souls still manning the plantation were Mr. Giles himself, a half-dozen white overseers with whom he'd shared the administrative living space. Nine men, all told, with the addition of myself and Mr. McCready. As Mr. Giles provided us with this update, I could not help the niggling suspicion that gradually began to worm its way into my mind. My thoughts turned to that one unlikely detail of my research, in which the Tunda was able to transmogrify all but one of its lower limbs. Though I continue to doubt this limitation, if true, would a seemingly wounded leg, well wrapped in blood-soaked bandages, not serve as a capable disguise? But no. Surely others saw the occurrence of the injury, helped him treat it. And what's more, man remembers details of our first meeting from all those years past. I've decided I'll not besmirch his dignity to require a more detailed examination of his leg, at least not until circumstances demand it. Night has fallen as I'm ending this entry, but I've not yet heard the strange echoing cries Mr. Giles described. Perhaps some predatory instinct had warned the beast of what my arrival pretends, and sent it scurrying back to its lair. I'm not some native crippled by fear and superstition, nor am I a typical Westerner, handicapped by willful ignorance and denial. I almost pity the poor thing. Tonight we'll rest, to 
long journey has left me utterly sapped. But tomorrow, the hunt begins in earnest. November 21, 1910. Morning. Gods damn me for a fool. In the night, Mr. Giles went missing along with three of the remaining overseers. We are now but five left. Myself, Mr. McCready, and Mr. Gerard, Buckwald, and Foster. The beast did not make its presence known. None of us heard or observed any sign of their departure, and thus I cannot determine whether Mr. Giles was, in fact, a creature in disguise or merely another one of its victims. I've drastically underestimated my foe. I've ordered Mr. McCready to outfit the men with supplies and abundance of firearms. It's my intent to make our way into the jungle and track the hell spawn to where it must now be resting, drowsy from gorging itself, and make an end of it. November 21, 1910. Evening. We entered the jungle as planned and soon had the thing's trail. Though Mr. McCready and the others are experienced woodsmen, they did not have the requisite knowledge to track a thing only vestigially of our world as I do. As we went, I attempted to educate them as to the means of identifying such trail signs, but with minor success. Near midday, we emerged into an unnatural clearing perhaps twenty feet in diameter. Its perimeter was marked by four large standing stones about eight feet in height, and covered in symbols unknown to any of us, but appeared to be of exotic origin, my nearest available analogy. Some early Proto-Arabic writings I once studied at the British Museum of London. The north-facing stone was knocked asunder by some unknown means, effectively breaking the circle. As the others rested, I made an examination of the clearing, wherefore I came upon a small artifact, the likeness of a woman carved from a white compound, perhaps bone, and oddly warm to the touch. Placing the idol in my pocket, I moved to rouse the men and continue our pursuit when I discovered that Mr. Buckwald had vanished. Upon this realization, Mr. Gerard and Foster were driven to rage, their anger misguidedly directed against me. Apparently, they believed they would have been otherwise long departed from the plantation had I not insisted on making my visitation and blamed me for what they now perceive all but certain doom. As they moved against me, throwing me to the ground while removing large knives from their belts in a wholly threatening manner, my defense came from a most unexpected quarter, as Mr. McCready drew his great pistol and, in short order, splattered the contents of both men's skulls over the jungle floor. Helping me find my feet, Mr. McCready suggested we retire to the plantation load up the mules with the remaining supplies and move to return to Cartagena. Though a part of me cried achingly to continue our pursuit of the tundra, I was forced to agree with his assessment of our unfavorable situation and acquiesce to this proposed course of action. I refused to take full blame for getting lost on the way back to the compound, for, as I've said, my woodcraft is highly specialized in tracking those beings of the supernatural. In truth, Mr. McCready should have insisted 
unleading far sooner than he did. By the time he took command of our route and got us back on the proper heading, twilight had fully set in. I'm unsure whether it was my superior perception or divine intervention that allowed me to step past the hidden pit unharmed, but in either case, Mr. McCready was not as fortunate. The hole, one of the traps, previously set to catch the creature, had been dug about eight feet deep, the bottom arranged with sharp stakes coated with a foul-smelling substance. Even in the waning light, I could make out the pool of blood rapidly forming beneath Mr. McCready from where he lay impaled, one hand raised toward me in a pleading gesture, desperation emanating from his pain-stricken face. I briefly debated making an attempt to remove him from the pit, but an ominous stirring of the nearby undergrowth made me reconsider. I'm not proud that I left him there. There was nothing to be done. His imminent death agonizingly obvious. His plating sobs will surely haunt my dreams. I have successfully returned to the administrative building and made a makeshift barricade to bar the door. Tomorrow I shall load the mules and begin my long journey to the coast. November 22, 1910. The morning sun awoke me from an uneasy sleep. Moving to the paddock to saddle the mules, I found the poor beasts slaughtered, black tongues already swelling where they lay amidst a bed of their own innards. Contemplating my options as I moved back toward the office, I was startled by a low series of moans emanating from near the entrance gate. Drawing my pistol and wary of a trick, I cautiously made my way to locate the source. I was shocked to find two bodies sprawled in the dirt outside the locked gate. The first was Mr. McCready, pale and still leaking from the puncture wound in his thigh, his belt and scraps of cloth tied to stem the worst of the flow. Next to him lay Mr. Giles, naked, his bullet-wounded legs swollen and angry red. Each man in turn begged for my help, imploring me to let him into the gate and shoot the other, who was clearly the monster in disguise. As I stood silent and unsure, contemplating these two men and their similarly wounded legs, their entreaties became first more desperate than violent. In a sudden flash of inspiration, I knew the only choice to make I shot both men in the head. To my disappointment, neither reverted to the tundra's true form, but then none of my research indicated such a revealing would occur. And if both were, in fact, who they claimed, I cannot feel much regret as neither would have survived the journey ahead in such a state without the mules. I rigged one of the saddlebags to allow me to carry as many supplies as I'm comfortably able pistol and ammunition ready in my belt. I've now traveled my intended road three times in my life, and I'm confident I can find my way. Perhaps once I reach the village in which Mr. Casper met his untimely demise, I'll be able to acquire a mule or even a porter. Three hundred miles over stinking and hospitable land, stalked by an otherworldly being, is nothing to a man of my experience, a trifle. Yes, nothing at all. 
I once wrote, there are a thousand ways to die in the Colombian rainforest. As I finish this entry, a low, keening wail rising from the surrounding jungle amends me. A thousand and one. I hope you enjoyed Tunda by Shadow Swimmer 77, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash shadow swimmer. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash S-H-A-D-O-W. S-W-I-M-M-E-R You will most likely find him looking around Reddit where he's continuing to add to his wicker set. Take a look, won't you? If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. You may be wondering if you survived the 300 miles back home. Well, that I cannot be sure about. All I have on hand is this journal. The bloodstains on it might be his, but the only way to be sure would be to send it in for testing. But I don't think I want any of my DNA getting out of the house. Too many questions to answer. Fighting crime can be a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Whether they're the friendly officer who waves traffic through the street, or the world-weary detective that sometimes plays by a different set of rules. But sometimes the criminal makes it easy when he turns himself in. It becomes a lot harder when you try to figure out what he did and why. There's the conundrum in the following story doesn't seem like the answers are going to make everything better. Without further ado, I present to you Her Red Right Hand. Farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors. Ah. John Milton, Paradise Lost. Standing under the glow of a flickering streetlight, John Avery's hand shook as he tried and failed to light the cigarette they held. With a mumbled curse, the stubborn smoke finally caught, and he inhaled deeply the quick rush of nicotine, helping steady nerves and hands alike while driving back to the persistent urge to vomit that he had, until a moment ago, had been so pressing. Flashing reds and blues of patrol cars shattered by the light yet steady drops of falling rain, illuminated the yards of yellow tape that surrounded the building behind him. The old factory, where once countless animals screamed their last before beating the butcher's knife had long ago fallen into disuse, until recently. The man who walked into the station earlier that evening had carried an oddly shaped bag. The desk sergeant was on the phone, else he would have sooner noticed the crimson spatters, some still wet, that covered the man's face and clothes, the slow drip 
drip, drip of fluid that leaked from the bag, marking a trail behind him. The sergeant's attention was only captured when the man poured a fountain of gore upon the desk. Assorted limbs and organs intermixed in a disgusting soup of blood and offal. Long ropes of intestines curling and twisting around livers, hearts, and here and there a sightless eye. The only one of the few people milling about the police lobby not moved by his unholy offering, the man had simply stepped back from the desk and lowered himself to his knees, hands interlaced above his head. He remained there, grotesque smile never leaving his face, until the pandemonium was sufficiently controlled and the officers on duty were able to make his arrest. He'd talk then, briefly, handcuffed to a table in the interrogation room. His name was Spencer Darabont. The various body parts belonged to his wife Tracy and their three children, all girls between the ages of five and ten. He told the police where to find the rest of them. John had worked homicide for the last 20 years, but even now, rapidly approaching retirement, he had never seen anything like this. That was saying something. The wake was no stranger to odd, even fantastic murders. Until a couple of hours ago, John would have said there was nothing that could shock him, nothing that could take him back to the short breath Evening nausea he'd experienced the first time he'd seen a dead body. That two-bit prostitute gutted and dumped in a back alley. He'd been wrong. The bodies, as horrific as they might be, weren't what caused John's gorge to rise, for he had seen many in far greater states of decay. Neither was it the obvious tools of torture haphazardly spread throughout the factory. Here, a welding kit... There a jar of industrial-strength acid. Over there, various implements to flay, scoop, and pierce. No. What had hit John hardest was the old television, connected to an ancient VCR. The yellow paper stuck to its back screen, reading, Play Me. The scene that unfolded in the first 30 seconds of that video was enough to open John's perspective to just how shallow his understanding of human perversion had been. That poor little girl. A rat-eaten cardboard box placed next to the television contained more videotapes, many more. John knew, before the investigation was over, he would have to painstakingly go through each of them for evidence, and the brief exposure he'd just experienced had him already concerned for his mental health. All cases left scars, some far deeper than others. His phone vibrated, and John flicked aside the half-burned cigarette before fishing it out of his pocket. Checking the caller ID, he sighed before flipping it open. Uh, yeah, hon? Dad, uh, what's going on? Paul was supposed to be home two hours ago, but he said something came up and won't tell me anything. New case, sweetheart. Nothing I can fill you in on. Chief's got him keeping an eye on the perp until we give the scene an initial once-over and hopefully get ahead of the media storm sure to follow. If you want more details, you can get it from the talking heads, same as everybody else. 
Her voice got quiet at that. Is it really that bad? He grimaced. Pretty bad. Okay, uh, just tell him to be careful that I love him. Will do. Try not to worry too much. Won't be good for the baby. He could hear the smile in her voice. He'll be fine. He comes from good stock. John smiled back. Yeah, mostly from your mother's side. Becky's still okay with the pregnancy? Sweet as ever. Can't wait to be a big sister. That's my girl. Okay, hon, gotta go. I'll tell Paul to check in when he can. Thanks, Dad. Love you. Love you, too. Closing the phone, John returned to its pocket. He shook his head to clear it, stealing himself before turning and re-entering the building. He crossed over to what they were considering the center of the crime scene. They'd stationed large portable lights around its perimeter to better illuminate the dingy confines of the area where a small group of people swarmed, placing small numbered placards and snapping pictures. Tell me what you got, Ramirez. The lead CSI turned from where he was crouched in the process of bagging a piece of evidence. John's stomach gurgled unhappily when he saw it appeared to be a child's ear. Good news, depending on how you look at it, boss. Won't be able to confirm they belong to Darabont until we get back to the lab, but there's crystal clear prints all over pretty much every knife, hatchet, and assorted pointy object in here. We get fibers, hair samples, the whole gamut. And Charlie's saying, based on her initial screening of the remains, she should be able to pull blood and semen from uh, pretty much anywhere. Doesn't look like our boy was particularly concerned about hiding what he was doing. John placed his fingers on the bridge of his nose as he felt the beginnings of a migraine start to kick in. Anything that might indicate some kind of motive? A journal? Anything like that? Not yet, boss. I'm telling what's on those videotapes, though. John grimaced. Great. And what about the message? Ramirez shook his head. As one, the two men turned to the far end of the crime scene. Amid a litany of other abuses, skin from the torsos of the four victims had been delicately removed and spread across one of the factory walls like horrific canvas. A word was painted in blood on each in turn. Her red right hand. Not sure, boss. I took the liberty of Googling it. Closest thing looks like a paraphrasing of something out of Milton's Paradise Lost. My guess is the perp is referring to himself, although I have no idea who the her he's referring to might be. And neither do I, John frowned. Okay, you and your team finish up here. Make sure we process everything by the book. Even though there seems to be plenty of evidence, you never know what's going to be the thing to make it stick. This clown's a real sick puppy. I don't think any of us would sleep particularly well if he manages to avoid a conviction based on a technicality. I'm going to head back over to the office and sit down with him. See if he feels like tapping a confession before he has more time to think about what he's done. Sounds good, boss. I'll call you if we find anything especially pertinent. Although, his gaze swept over the scene. 
At this point, I'm not sure what would qualify. John shook his head in agreement and headed for the door. Just as he reached his car, he felt his phone vibrate again. Hey, Steve, tell me you boys have something over there. Uh, hey, John. Yeah, we've got a little bit for you, but I don't know if it'll shed any light, though. Bob and I went over to the Darabont residence. The guy's an M.D., works in the E.R. at St. Vincent's in town here. No record, nothing so much as a parking ticket. No sign of struggle at the house. His supervisor at the hospital said Darabont phoned in last week to call off a couple of shifts, just saying they were taking an impromptu family vacation. He apparently told the kids' school the same thing. His wife stayed at home with the youngest girl, so there was no one that would have noticed her missing right away. We managed to track Darabont's mom down. Ladies in her 70s got concerned when she hadn't heard from him. I guess he typically visits her on Sundays. She swung by the house and found a note saying the whole family was going to be out of town for a couple of weeks. Well, it seems kind of odd. Yeah, she thought so too. It worded her out since normally he would have called her even more when she couldn't get him on his cell. But the note was in Durabon's handwriting. She wasn't quite concerned enough to contact the department. John frowned. Probably wouldn't have mattered even if she had. If everything else you've got is true, there'd be nothing to flag it, even if she'd reported him as a missing person. Any idea why he would have shown up here in the wake? Nothing we've found so far. Doesn't seem to have any connection to the place in particular. As far as his mom knew, he'd never visited our part of the state. John sighed. The headache now coming on in full force. All right, thanks, Steve. Appreciate the help. Tell Chief McQuaid uh, I said hey. Well, do, John. We'll keep sniffing around over here, see if anything at the hospital has anything more they can tell us. Check if they noticed him acting out of character recently. Sounds good. Although with all the evidence it's looking like we've got, I think finding a motive will just be pure gravy. Talk to you later. Later. With much to ponder, John got in his car and started back toward the station. It was past midnight when he parked in the lot. The shadows, dark and thrown long by the lamps, lining the way to the path up to the administrative entrance. John pulled out his lanyard with his staff key and let himself in, handed his pistol and side piece over to Spirally, who was a non-night guard, as he passed through the metal detector then reholstered his weapons before making his way toward the squad room. The bullpen was deserted. Small wonder, Arthur's wake wasn't large enough to warrant much of a police force, so all available units were pretty much already at the scene or resting up to start their shift in the morning. He frowned at the chief's darkened office. Lazy asshole. The man had been mentally checked out for years now, just biding time to her retirement, looming even closer than John's. If things had gone a little differently, it could have been John wearing the pants in the department, but no. That was an old gripe. No sense rehashing it now, not with work to be done. He grabbed a pen, pad of paper, digital tape recorder, and rights waiver before heading back to the interrogation room. 
It was met outside the door by Officer Paul Schuster, who, aside from being a solid cop, was also his son-in-law. Hey, Paul, Chief Holbrook, check out. Yes, sir, a couple hours ago. Said he needed to get some sleep to be able to face the press in the morning. Uh-huh. And how's our guest? He's still in the interrogation room, sir, right where you asked me to keep him. John looked at the perp through the one-sided glass. The guy was weird. No, I mean, how is he? He's, well, he's odd, sir. Jesus, how many times do I have to tell you it's John? Unless we're in a formal setting. Christ. What do you mean, odd? I mean, he's just sitting there with that creepy smile on his face. Hasn't asked for a phone call, a lawyer, a cup of coffee. Nothing. Paul's face curled. Pretty sure he pissed himself, even though Spirally and I have given him plenty of opportunities to hit the head. John frowned. Huh. You say anything more? No. Not since the initial intel where we could find the bodies. Uh, sir, John, I mean, the scene? Did you find the wife and kids? What was left of them? John chewed his lip thoughtfully. All right, let's go try to talk to this son of a bitch. Paul's eyes widened. Uh, sir, do you think that's such a good idea? The chief said, yeah, right, the chief. Look, Paul, I'm going to go in with some forms and a tape recorder and see if I can't get this psycho to give me a confession before he changes his mind and lawyers up. If you aren't comfortable skirting the chief's orders a little, how about you go call my daughter so she stops worrying? Paul pondered this for a moment. Uh, sorry, sir. You go in there. I'm coming in with you. The guy's chained up. Your wife's worried why you haven't called. Paul shook his head. I can't do it, sir. It'd be a breach of protocol to allow one officer in the room with a suspect. Besides, at least they'd kill me if something happened to you. John couldn't help but laugh. All right, you friggin' boy scout. How you ever managed to bag my little girl with that clean-cut attitude, I'll never know. Fine, let's go. Before Paul could protest further, John opened the door to the room and stepped inside. The metal chair squeaked harshly on the floor as he pulled it out and took a seat, carefully arranging the materials he'd brought with him to his side. He heard Paul take up a position behind him, leaning against the wall. At last, John turned his attention to the prisoner. The room was well lit to allow for easy observation, but some trick of the light seemed to drape the suspect in shadow. His hair was long and matted with blood falling forward and hiding his face behind it. A big man, fat with the weight of a middle-aged man. His clothes were covered and stained with the many fluids of the victims. As John watched, Darabont looked up at him, his eyes almost seeming to glow with a red sheen through the curtain of his hair. A crazed smile, never leaving his lips. John repressed an involuntary shudder. Odd was how he would have described the man. Terrifying, maybe. John cleared his throat, forced a tight smile. So, Dr. Darabont, Doc, is it okay to call you Spencer? Prisoner replied with an almost imperceptible nod. Great. 
Glad we're getting off to such a good foot. Now, Spencer, I'm Detector Avery. You, me, and my friend Officer Schuster here are going to have a nice little chat about what happened to your family, okay? Again, the slight nod. Fantastic. Now, I'm required to ask if you'd like to have a lawyer present. This time, a small head shake. Alrighty. Now, since there's no lawyers present, I do have your permission to record this conversation. John frowned slightly, but Darabont shook his head in the negative. Okay, then. John slid the recorder from the table and passed it back to Paul, stealthily pressing the record button as he did so. Paul slipped the recorder into his pocket where the red light would be concealed. John turned back to Darabont. Real quick, before we get started, Dr. Darabont, I need you to sign this form saying you've agreed to talk to me and that you won't need a lawyer. John slid the form over to the prisoner, feeling a slight movement of apprehension when Darabont took the pen in his large, meaty hand before scrawling an imperceptible signature on the indicated line and handing it back to him. Thank you so much. He passed the form to Paul. Throughout these preliminaries, John had slowly become aware that something was off about Darabont. He couldn't put his finger on just what, but he'd interviewed enough murderers to know that this guy wasn't right, even so far as crazed killers went. Whatever it was, that indefinable thing scared him, almost beyond reason. It spoke to some ancient reptilian part of John's brain and told him to put as much distance as possible between him and the thing sitting across the table as humanly possible. Shaking his head to clear it, John pressed on, hoping he projected more confidence than he felt, beginning to think that conducting this interview may have been a mistake. Now, Spencer, I'm an old-fashioned sort of guy, so I'm going to be direct with you. I don't really need you to confess because I already have enough to lock you away for a really, really long time. So, what I'm really curious about, John peered at the killer across from him, is why? Why did you kill your family? The silence, pregnant with anticipation, John's perception seemed to take on a kind of hypersensitivity. The taste of the burger he had for lunch caked the back of his throat, and he could smell the faintly sweet aroma of Paul's aftershave behind him accompanying the stench of the dark ikers staining the prisoner's clothes to his front. He swallowed uneasily despite himself. At last, Darabont spoke his voice, almost a whisper, but nevertheless, carrying the sound of gravel poured over sheet metal. For fun. His manic grin widened even farther, as the tiny hairs on the back of John's neck stood up at full attention. He desperately fought the urge to wet himself. You're a family man, detective. Ever wonder how little girls taste? Darabont smiled lasciviously. I know, in every way you could mean. <laughs> he chuckled lightly. Didn't bother to pack groceries for a family outing. Didn't need to, just fried up little pieces off them to feed each other. He refused at first, but I found ways to motivate him to choke it down. He sighed as if remembering. Wife was the easiest. I wouldn't believe the things I got her to do by promising to stop hurting her babies. 
Well, I guess you'll see when you get the tapes. He laughed evilly, if you live so on. Of course I lied to her. Saw the hope die a little more in the bitch's eyes every time. Still didn't keep her from agreeing the next time. Or the next. Or the next. He licked his lips. That thrill right there, seeing her spirit chipped away bit by bit, was almost as good as the pleasure I got turning her spawn into such willing little whores. He threw his voice higher. Daddy, I'll do anything. Just please don't cut off any more toes. He chuckled. That factory. Got some good memories there. Old, new. Darkness is on the rise to tell the shadows coming. The wolves howl. The serpents hiss. You're going to have to make a choice. You all will. John stared at the man. What choice is that? Darabont smiled. Whether to be good little meat sack, who serves his masters willingly, or one who needs to be broken. I like the ones who fight. He ran his tongue across the front of his teeth. Makes the agony that much sweeter. Which will you choose, Detective, when the sun goes dark and the moon falls silent and the song of joy echoes across the land? Whichever will you choose. John felt frozen where he sat. The pounding of his heart a drum in his ears, all equally still behind him, his darabont fell still. Finally, John managed to stutter out another question. What? Who is her red right hand? Who's she? From within the dark recesses of his matted hair, John could see Darabont's eyes glowed blood red. No question now. Impossible as it was. Why, I'm the red right hand, detective. Her prophet... The one who prepares the path, spreading discord and despair where here I roam. And as for her, <laughs> he laughed. It was crazy, but it seemed to John that Darabont's teeth were lengthening, sharpening. She is the All-Mother, the first, the one who leads the way, he grinned, into darkness. Abruptly, the lights in the station went out. There was a brief moment of silence before John heard a sharp metallic snap that his mind dimly registered must be the sound of a handcuff chain being broken. Suddenly, he was thrown backward out of his chair to the ground as an enormous black thing, all glowing red eyes and flashing fangs, flipped the heavy metal table across the room and flew at him with a roar. He yelled and raised his hands defensively, but the attack never came. Instead, he heard a crash and the sound of a desperate struggle. Sir, sir, shoot him, I can't hold him, I can't... Ah, damn it! Paul cried. Jesus, damn it, no, no! At that, the voice of his son-in-law screaming in pain. The crippling fear was driven out of John, sharply as if he'd been dunked into a bucket of ice water. Years of training took over, and regaining his feet, he fumbled briefly to release his pistol from its holster before pulling it free. 
He used Paul's cries to orient himself, raising his gun toward the mound of inky blackness that seemed even darker than its surroundings. John pulled the trigger once, then twice, each shot accompanied by a white flash and the sound of thunder again and again until the chambers were empty and the gun only clicked hollowly. As the echo of the last shot faded away, the dark mass fell heavily to the ground at its feet. John heard the sound of footsteps and turned as the door was thrown open, the soft glow of emergency light revealing the form of Officer Spirally, who pushed into the room, gun drawn. Detective Avery, what's going on? I heard a crash and then gunshots. Is everything all... Oh. John turned back to the room's interior. The light leaking in from the hallway provided just enough illumination so he could see Spencer Darabont, limp and lying face down where he'd fallen on top of Paul's unmoving form. John lowered his gun to his side, the black pit of despair rapidly expanding in his stomach. God! Oh, God! How is he going to tell Lisa? He tensed when Darabont shifted. Hell! Paul groaned. John, you think you could get this fat ass off me? John sat at his desk, a cup of lukewarm coffee held in his hand, but cigarette between his fingers. Smoking inside was strictly against the chief's policy, but strong. Darren's body was still cooling on the floor of the interrogation room where he died, as John hadn't quite yet worked up the motivation to call Ramirez to tell Charlie to come grab the stiff. Spirally was back at his guard station. John had practically had to force him back there, only after ensuring him that he and Paul were both fine. He'd sent Paul home to Lisa. Miraculously, the kid was basically unharmed. A few bumps or bruises, but nothing too major. John had asked him why he'd screamed. He said the freak had been trying to bite his neck of all things. John, angrily, stubbed out the cigarette in the bottom of the empty cup. What a psycho. He'd already decided he was going to leave Paul's involvement out of the official report. John figured he'd be able to spin the whole thing so that there wouldn't be too much trouble brought down on anyone. He knew Spirally would back up whatever he said. But the kid, he didn't deserve the heat. Neither did Lisa. John sighed probably did the world a favor by sanctioning Darabont the way he did. The guy was so nuts. He'd even had John seeing things at the end there. A red right hand. Shh. Right. Good luck preparing the way for the darkness now, sicko. The morning sun was just beginning to peek its face over the horizon when John, at last, headed to his car to go home. Darabont had been bagged and tagged, his initial report had been filed, and all pertinent parties had been notified. Chief Holbrook had been initially pissed, although John figured it was as much from being woken up at three in the morning as from learning John had shot their murder suspect. He'd been mollified when John informed him he managed to get a taped confession out of Darabont. No matter, he hadn't agreed to taping. It had been easy enough to force his signature on the appropriate form. At some point in the night, he realized Paul must have ended up taking the tape recorder with him. Small wonder he'd forgotten it with everything that had gone on. John would just have to swing by his and Lisa's place 
pick it up before going back to the station that afternoon. John took in the morning sun, almost surprised at the lightness in his heart. Never killed a man before last night, but maybe. His feeling was because he had served to remove a piece of true darkness in the world. His pocket vibrated, and he fished out the phone. A minute later, John had slapped his magnetic flasher to the roof and was pushing the old Chevy to its breaking point as he roared across the wake, siren wailing. I'd have something for you, John, Stephen said. Just got done talking to an ER nurse who was on shift with Darabont at St. Vincent's the last day he came to work before disappearing. Said he treated some crazy woman, a homeless drifter, that had been shot trying to sneak into a residence. EMTs had to strap the psycho down once they reestablished a heartbeat. The nurse said the patient had been raving on and on about darkness and something about her right hand or some such. Anyway, the loony ended up managing to give your perp a solid bite on the forearm before they sedated her, and she calmed down, claimed she didn't remember anything she'd been doing up until that point. The nurse figured Darabont took a few days off to recover from the injury. But I'm wondering if he didn't catch some kind of virus or something from him. John had hung up then. He pulled into Lisa's driveway and leapt out of the car without bothering to turn off the engine. Running up the walk, the house dark, through his pistol as he reached the front door. He paused for just a moment, considering whether it would be better to use his spare key to gain entry or simply kick the damn door down when he noticed the white piece of paper taped to the inside of the screen. John removed the note with trembling hands and read it twice before collapsing to his knees in complete and utter despair. Hey, John. After all the excitement last night, I decided to take a few days off and figured I might as well take the whole family for a little vacation. Don't worry, I'll take extra good care of them. And I'll make sure to take plenty of home movies so you won't miss a thing. That daughter of yours sure has spirit. See you soon. He recognized Paul's handwriting, even though the note was unsigned. I hope you enjoyed Her Red Right Hand by Shadow Swimmer 77 as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash shadowswimmer. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash S-H-A-D-O-W-S-W-I-M-M-E-R. You can find them on Reddit and various other places on the internet, but we know of one place you can definitely find them. Chilling Tales from Dark Nights Anthology, Volume 1, available now in print, soon in digital and audiobook As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program, and that Otis sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure he would very much appreciate it as well. 
Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium, extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012. All of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jerry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiley. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, <laughs> if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. 
If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>